Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, where I am enjoying a great new year. 2019 has burst upon the scene like a a big wave crashing on the Florida beaches here. Uh, Nick Shauna, are you excited that we're in Florida and not up in uh, the, let's say, snowy, howling wind Northland? Yes, I was just up in snowy, behowling Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Which I love, but I I definitely enjoy the weather here. Well, that's great. And I know that you have, on one occasion, uh, taken the opportunity in Washington, probably an earlier trip, to visit the Bible Museum? Yes, we've been twice. Um, It's, it's, I think, $20 a person to get in. It's totally worth it. It's amazing. That's a good price, because it's a huge museum, right? About four stories, yeah. It's worth every every second. Yeah. I said, uh, I think when you told me about it, I said, sounds like your mind is blown in a positive sense. And uh, and like you were supercharged. I mean, you were, you were more excited than ever about the Bible. Yes, yes, it is definitely mm-hmm. worth it. My, I, they had a Martin Luther autograph Bible. Oh from my Fifteen forty-two. I, I stared Perfect. at it for about twenty minutes. Wonderful. Well, you know, we're going to be talking about the Bible today. Our focus is actually going to be zooming in what I call the I fifty-three highway. You know, uh, if you if you check out the interstate system in the United States, there's I I seventy-five that goes through Florida. I ninety-five over there on the East Coast. And then uh, across Florida here is I-10, the east-west connector uh, that uh, binds the states together. Well, the the state of of love and forgiveness with Christ has a has a connectivity here, and it's uh, I'm going to use the the I-53, and actually, it's kind of a, a, a coining uh, a new phrase. It's an interstate highway of inter, of Isaiah 53. And it brings us from the state of lostness and confusion and brokenness and and uh, literally uh, being infected with sin to a state of, of beauty, of purpose, of love, and of eternity with Christ and God uh, himself. And that is a blessing. That's a, a powerful message that comes out of the I-53 chapter, Interstate uh, 53 here, uh, switches over to Isaiah 53. And we'll be talking about the message that comes to us from Isaiah 53. Uh, We are excited about 2019 because of a major book, Darwin Devolves, that is coming out in just a month. Are you excited about that, Nick? Yes, I can't believe it's only a month away. Yeah. Well, we've been waiting for literally six months. We uh, heard the announcement this past summer that Michael Behe, one of the leading scientists in the world who has studied intricately, uh, analyzed and studied the, the evidence for and against Darwinian theory, And he became a skeptic of Darwinian theory back in the 80s when he read a book called Evolution of Theory and Crisis. He was already on the faculty at Lehigh University. His first book, Darwin's Black Box, which came out originally in 1996, is now a book of the ages. And I think we have in the trilogy of Michael Behe, this third book, Darwin Devolves, coming out in late February, is going to be equally powerful, perhaps even more, compared to the first book he published. And I, I am just shocked in the most positive sense that I can phrase it that way. I'm stunned. 
I'm excited about the analysis that he has put forward in Darwin Devolves. And you know what? Devolves is like the opposite. Would it? Would you not think of that as the opposite of evolves? Yeah, yeah. So, so in other words, evolution is working to ratchet things downward. It is taking genes and it's ruining them. And how fast will evolution progress, macroevolution, when you're ruining things? <laughs> not very fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, something's gone wrong and we can't fix it. Oh, wait a minute, evolution has decided to go down a dead-end path. Oh, my goodness, where are we going to go? And that's part of the story. It's a, it's a vast and uh, just it percolates with fresh thinking, with very important cutting-edge breakthroughs that are brought to our attention and explained very clearly. So I'm thrilled about that. We also have a collaboration that we've entered into here at the C.S. Lewis Society with a group called the Bay Apologetics Group, led by a recently retired uh, corporate head, and his name is Dave Engelhart. And Dave and I, working with his team of about a dozen or so uh, lay apologists here, all trained by Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, are laying the plans for an exciting series of ministry events here in Tampa Bay, uh, starting literally just in the next uh, couple weeks with the uh, February 17th Sarasota Baptist presentation by our own board member and faculty, uh, excuse me, uh, affiliate lecturer, and Clayton Brumby is the one I'm referring to. His presentation starts at 6 and goes to 8 p.m. If you're in the Tampa Bay area, uh, please plan to join us that evening. It's going to be an awesome presentation of Siegfried and Me. Uh, what is Siegfried and Me? Have you heard about Siegfried and Me? Yes, Clayton Brumby gives an awesome hmm. presentation. Hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. He actually plays both sides of an atheist versus Christian debate. There were people in the audience who were actually convinced when we heard him speak. So where did <laughs> he go? Right. I wanted to meet him. Yes, <laughs> yeah. He did a shortened version in the course that we had here at Trinity College that you were a very, very fine student of. So thank you so much for that uh, first-person recollection of how uh, what a zinger he provides. So uh, plan to, if you're, again, in Central Florida, or if you're going to be hopping down on a plane from the, the snowy Northland, join us on, uh, that's February the 17th, Sunday evening, 6 p.m. Uh, kickoff, goes to about 8, and Clayton Brumby, Siegfried and me, you can always contact us if you have information, if you need more information, and our email address is information at apologetics.org. Well, let's uh, shift gears now and focus on Isaiah 53. Now, if you are uh, not familiar with the Old Testament, this chapter may not uh, be one that you have read before. I'm going to go ahead and uh, read parts of it. I won't necessarily read all 12 verses. It's a really short chapter. But uh, I can tell you, Nick, that when I was in college and I was an agnostic, you know, studying, um, pushing through my freshman year there up in New Jersey at Princeton, I didn't have any idea that there was such a prophecy in the Bible of Christ dying for our sins. Now, let me just ask you, because you came to faith in the mm -hmm. last, what, five, six, seven years? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so more, more or less. Did you ever, when you were growing up, did you have any familiarity with Isaiah 53? I had no idea. And a lot of people even today don't. It's, it's, it's a lurking bombshell. Oh, yeah. In the Old it's Testament. the gospel in a chapter. In, in the one Old chapter. It's and it's not amazing. a long chapter. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you something that I'd like you to listen carefully. Nick, I want you to hold me accountable. 
I'm going to memorize the net uh, Bible version of Isaiah 53. Will you hold me accountable? I will hold you accountable. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so I will. I will. I may not have it perfect, you know, perfectly memorized here in one week, but uh, I think by the end of February I can have it nailed down. So, uh, and we'll report to the uh, you know universe next door audience how Woodward is doing oh, yeah. in, in his progress. So Isaiah 53 is one of the 66 chapters of what is arguably the most important book in the Old Testament. Now, the people uh, who study the Old Testament say, what about Genesis, or what about the Psalms, or what about this or that book? So let's say it's tied for first place, okay, as far as the most important, massively, you know, powerful and revealing of truth uh, of all the books of the Old Testament, and of all the wonderful chapters in Isaiah, of those 66 chapters, this is the Mount Everest. This is the cherry on the top of the Sunday. But you might even say it is a poignant, true story told 730 years ahead of time. Now, why do I say that? Because Jesus most probably gave up his life, died on the cross. Uh, even the secular historians have recorded, the Roman historian Tacitus, in the section where he's talking about Nero, actually steps back in history. And, and verifies even that it was Pontius Pilate under under Pontius Pilate that the Christus he calls him that the Christ was uh, executed. Well, in secular history we read of the execution. In spiritual history we read of that same crucifixion, but it was 730 years ahead of time, because Isaiah wrote this roughly <clears throat> 700 B.C. He and Micah at that time were in the declining kingdom. There were some good kings. There were a, a number of really raunchy and, and, and uh, really not following God type of kings. And so, but Isaiah powerfully revealed what would happen. And really the opening of that chapter happens in the end of Isaiah 52. We don't have time to step back into the end of 52, but it talks about the suffering servant. The suffering servant is a mysterious figure. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to group these 12 verses into six clusters of just, or pairs of verses, six pairs of verses, and each one has a headline. And the first headline, and, and, and I'm just going to back away for a second and mention that this is arguably the most powerful um, mother load uh, gold mine of truth both biblically and in apologetics that you find in the entire Old Testament. I, it, I would agree 100%. And, and if I could just throw in, this sure. this book is so specific to Jesus Christ that if you read this, and I've done this, read mm-hmm. this to people who have never heard Isaiah 53 mm-hmm. and say, who is this about? There's, well, that's about Jesus, of course, but what does that mean? And, you know, it's so specific that people could try to make the argument that they must have gone in after Jesus came and added these things, because there's no way. But because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have copies, over 20 copies, of the book of Isaiah from before Jesus came to the earth. So it's not like they came and they said, well, let's have. add it in. They yeah. couldn't have it. It's, yeah. it's word for word, and that's just mm. so amazing. It's it's literally the gospel yeah. in a chapter. Absolutely. So it is, uh, it's remarkable. It, it carries the, the something of the, of the uh, kind of the ordinary, you might call it ordinary life that Jesus lived because he, you know, he didn't attract a lot of attention to himself before his public ministry. And so let me just go ahead and jump in and begin with uh, Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. 
And this is from the NET, N-E-T, which stands for New English Translation. So I'm reading from the NET Bible. So here we go, Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. The headline here is unimpressed. That's the headline, Nick, so you can write that down. Okay, people were unimpressed with this figure, this uh, mysterious suffering servant. Here we go. Who would have believed what we just heard? When was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that we might cat that he might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. And what I love about that opening pair of verses is that it just sets the stage beautifully. Christ was not one that, uh, let's say, had flair and flamboyance just, just kind of oozing from him. Mm-hmm. He, you would miss him in a crowd. You wouldn't notice. He didn't stand out. You know? And so I'm going to go ahead to uh, my next headline. Next headline, I'm going to call it uh, in two parts, Reject Yet Co-Sufferer. So here we go, Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illnesses. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. So that is a pair of verses that talk about the horrible treatment that Christ endured. He was despised. He was rejected. A lot of um, Christian hymns and songs have taken words from these two verses. And this is where he basically is laying it out for us. He's laying it out for us. Verses 5 and 6. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. And then verse 6. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. And what I love about those two verses in five and six is we have a cluster of five and some people say there may be even more than five statements that Christ did not the Lord Jesus did not die for anything he had done he had uh, gone so far as to give his life as a ransom as a payment as an exchange for us and what we had done and I love the way that they have translated uh, verse 6, there's actually, Nick, a, about a two-paragraph footnote in the Net Bible going into the uh, strategy, into the reasoning of why they translated verse 6. But let me just read it again. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. So the sins that we have committed were you might think of it as as having a a bomb on the tip of their uh, activated torpedo, 
and they were wanting uh, to home in on the person who had committed those sins. Sin does that. It's like as a homing device. We, we may, you know, attack someone else, but that sin will come back and attack us with, with uh, God's proper and, and righteous judgment. But then God, as it were, recoded the homing device so that it didn't come in on us. It went on, on Christ. And so we see God's work there through the powerful, um, incredible message that the sins that we had committed were caused to attack him. So the verse, uh, verses 5 and 6 are an appropriate capstone in the uh, first half of Isaiah 53. Now we're jumping into part 2. And uh, I'm going to give the headline for part 2, the first pair of verses, 7 and 8. The headline here is, Led Away Silently. That is, Led Away Silently. Christ was led away. And this is where we have some of the most powerful predictive prophecy in the entire Bible. One way you know that a worldview is getting into the realm of truth, that there's something solid there that you can sink your teeth into and that you can actually validate, you can verify, you can tell that it's, it really holds up to scrutiny, and that is when a religious figure, a, a prophet or uh, some person who claims to be more than just an ordinary man, as Christ did, when that person can bring to support his work actual predictive prophecy. So here, the verses uh, that we're talking about, 7 and 8, are, are just overflowing with predictive prophecy. I will read them real quickly. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, Like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people. He was wounded. It's pretty powerful. And so what we have here is the, uh, in a nutshell, a description of the very details you find in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John as they go into excruciating detail about Jesus remaining silent in front of all the harsh accusation being hurled against him by the, by the crowd there at the Caiaphas hearing, at the initial Pontius Pilate hearing, and then at the second Pilate hearing uh, when he was sent back uh, for final adjudication. And so Jesus' silence in the trial before the crucifixion is predicted in a way that is just eerie. It is mysterious. It's powerful. All right, well, we're into the last uh, section of this uh, amazing chapter, Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. And I'm going to let you make up a headline. Are you ready for this, Nick? Okay, this is your opportunity. Okay, so here are the verses, and I'll let you be thinking. I can carry on for a bit of commentary while you're thinking of the headline. Okay, verses 9 and 10. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. Because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though the Lord desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see his descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. So there's a pair of verses for you. 
Um, and if you want a little bit more time, I can make a quick comment, or do you have an idea for a headline? I have an idea. If you go ahead and make your comment. Okay, okay. Well, I, I think that there's really kind of a double movement here in Isaiah 53, 9 and 10, which makes it a double whammy, I mean, doubly powerful as uh, uh, an item in our listing of apologetic evidences. One is we have more detail about the disposition of the body, uh, which is uh, almost shocking in verse 9. And yet we have good news coming in verse 10, uh, which I kind of give a broad hint that the, that the Messiah would not stay dead. He would actually enjoy a restoration of life because of what it says. Uh, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life. And the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. So, I mean, I you could almost think of this as um, good news at the at the tomb, and then good news long run, or something like that. But do you have an idea? No, I I, I like both of those. Um, okay. Maybe death has been swallowed up. It makes me think of Isaiah twenty five eight. All right, and death is swallowed up uh, in this case uh, by victory, and it's a victory that is represented in, in kind of an anticipation phase being buried in, of course, Joseph of Arimathea is the rich man that this is prophesying. Uh, because they would have buried him with criminals, but he asked for the body. So that's the fulfillment we find in the New Testament. So I think that what we see here in uh, verses 9 and 10 is a double positive bombshell of predictive detail that again shows that this is not a human construction. This is a divine revelation of the future timeline which God had established centuries. And literally, of course, outside of space and time, he had set up these things, employing the free choices of human beings. It wasn't like he, uh, you know, set us up as little micro-robots uh, just, you know, on cue doing exactly what he had programmed us. He, he actually used the genuine choices, both sinful and, and righteous, of God's people and God's enemies throughout that timeline leading up to this very moment of the crucifixion. And, of course, the burial we've already referred to led to a victory. The first of three hints of victory are found in verse 10. Verses 11 and 12, we're now ready to go into the last pair of verses of Isaiah 53. And I'll read these uh, because they're really powerful, and then I'll give my headline. Okay, uh, verse 11 and 12. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful, because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels when he lifted up the sin of many and intervened on behalf of the rebels." And I'm just going to say, sin is defeated. Victory is my headline. Sin is defeated. Victory. And sin is defeated in so many ways because it says that he carried their sins. He paid for the, the awful, uh, you know, torrent, the, the waterfall, you might think, of, of righteous judgment that was headed our way. And Jesus stepped into the path and said, I'll take it. And as a result, God says, I'm going to let you divide the spoils of victory with the powerful. 
with all the God's righteous, Jesus will be at the head of that procession coming into the kingdom because he is the king. He is the God-man. He's the one who stepped from beyond space and time into our world. And he took the place of you, Nick, and of me, Tom Woodward, and of everybody listening to this broadcast. He took your place. He allowed the sins of each one of us to attack him instead of us. And we can reach out. We can trust him. We can believe the message, and we can put our faith in him and say, be my Lord, be my Savior. If you're at the point of making that decision, let us know here. Contact us, uh, reach out to us at information at apologetics.org. So we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.